work is done by people. Their identities form the core of who they are. And if an organization expects those people to be successful, we need to be looking at them as whole human beings and everything that makes them unique and brings that diversity to work. It's called diversity washing. These initiatives are mainly used for marketing, for facade. Often feels like we'll change our avatar in social medias for, for a month and then our job is done. In many cases, a company is like exit data shows that you have like a bigger proportion of underrepresented employees leaving. And if you like put numbers to that, that how much does it actually cost you when you lose this talent? That's when they usually start understanding it. You just have to find the right data and the right ways of messaging it to them. Welcome to Fork, Pull, Merge, Push. This is a show about topics developers obsess over with guest engineers from around the world. This season, it really has been all about the future of work. We've talked about remote work, agile. We've talked about if development is becoming obsolete, AI applications and what they really allow us to do. One of the things that we've discovered is that when we have tools that we can use, it kind of frees our mind into thinking other things. That could be like how to be responsible in our work, in our field. And one of the things that is very much in the core of future business, it is in the core of future work, it is in the core of like the history of work, I would say, and that is diversity, equality, and inclusivity. So um, I would like to ask you first and foremost, what does it mean to you? Well, first of all, that's very interesting that you already started the terminology topic here because some people refer to diversity, equality and inclusion and some people refer to diversity, equity and inclusion. So basically, when we talk about diversity, we mean differences between groups, but also the diversity of individuals. This can be different kind of demographic aspects like gender, ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, etc., but also different aspects to your competencies in an organization, as well as cognitive diversity. And it's also important to remember neurodiversity. When we talk about inclusion, we usually talk about an active and conscious practice of including people as opposed to a sometimes unintentional practice of excluding people. And when we talk about equity, I usually refer to a process of recognizing different kind of barriers in order to enable equal outcomes. So that's also maybe the difference between equality and equity is that equality as a concept refers more to giving everyone like the same size box. Mm -hmm. And then equity instead talks about what kind of barriers there might be and what kind of like tools do we need to give to people with different kind of needs and people who start from different uh, levels of the playground in a way to enable those equal outcomes. And then if we zoom out as well, there's been some movement in the DEI space where you have some organizations talking about DEIB, where B stands for belonging. I mean, you have other organizations talking about JEDI, and that's where you've got your usual letters of the acronym, but you add J for justice, and that takes a much more zoomed out point of view looking at the societal structures that have been implemented from day dot um, and seeing where those 
uh, where organizations can help dismantle some of those structures that are basically structures of oppression. But for Reactor, we're sticking to the, the basics for the conversation, but also for everyone listening at large that for us, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think like regardless of the abbreviation, whether we talk about DEI, DEIB, JEDI, I think anyways, what's important is to understand that how these societal background aspects of DEI are reflected into our organizations and then recognizing those in the context of that organization. And from there, developing the kind of processes and practices and a culture where we focus on what's kind of like relevant for, for example, here in, in Reactor's context, what does DEI mean yeah. for Reactor and what do we need to do here in order to create a more, even more inclusive Reactor? I want to take a step back maybe. I really like how our discussion is flowing and maybe before we go any deeper, I want to introduce our guests <laughs> <laughs> today. <laughs> So we yeah. got uh, Jasmine or Yasmin and Cassie. They're both uh, brilliant members of our DI team in, at Reactor. I would also add my two cents why we want to talk about this topic in the season, partly because you mentioned, Anna, when we talk about the future of work or, and the future in tech industry in particular, we want to create this future ourselves, right? It's We're not talking about something that is like 10 years from now. We're talking about something that we're making today for tomorrow. Maybe it's a subjective opinion, maybe, maybe not, but I feel like tech industry in particular is uh, falling behind when it comes to, to the DEI matters. So thanks for bringing that up, Oles. I do think that the case for DEI in tech is both a people and a business case. So how do we create company cultures and environments at work where, where people can really thrive and be their best and also have a sense of belonging, but also well-being? And in addition to that, how do we enable through the well-being of our people the fact that we're able to create, for example, products and services that do not serve just the few, but mm, mm. the many. So how do we create products that are... Accessible and yeah. unbiased. Yeah, how do we create more unbiased and more accessible and more inclusive products for a larger group of people? Mm. So it's not just about, you know, building a better workplace for us, but it is also enabling better outcomes in, in our business too. You cannot ask a team of like five straight white men to create a solution that would be used by millions of people, right? That's yeah. what's happened for the most part historically anyway. Yeah. Um, it's just that there's now more of a light that shone on those practices where people can start to think a bit critically and feel safe doing it mm. to sit in a meeting and go, are, are we sure we have the best representation of the population here in mm -hmm. order to make a decision that could impact potentially millions of people. Um, to ask that question, you know, even five years ago in the tech industry would have been a really tough thing to do, particularly for someone from an underrepresented background. I have a maybe quite abstract question, but I just felt like you were going here, like mentioning what was before, what is happening now. And what's maybe the next steps? So could you maybe try to crystallize on the, this journey, DI journey in tech? Let, let's maybe narrow it down to tech industry specifically. Where are we now? Like what are the current struggles or current things that we 
it trying to establish as the base? And then what are the next steps that are relevant in the industry? If we like take a look back, if we think about the past five years, for example, and of course, like historically for many complex reasons, and there's a lot of nuance here, of course, but there has been a lack of diversity in the tech industry and a lot of diversity debt in a lot of tech companies. And I think what has changed because of also different kind of societal movements in the background, but also to, to various other reasons, there's a lot of increased demand for actually advancing DEI in, in tech companies. And I think that's the point where we're kind of at, that a lot of companies have woken up to the topic or are waking up to, hey, we actually need to do something about this. Probably they realize that it's not something that just happens by itself, right? That you have to be proactive. Totally. Yeah, this brings to mind, I think it was a couple of years ago, Basecamp had a, a bit of a situation where they announced to their employees that there would be no political discourse on their Slack channels or internal communications. And it resulted in people leaving the company because of it. Mm. And I think that was a real wake-up call for a lot of tech organizations, for sure, mm. to, to think about the fact that you can't ask people to leave core parts of their personality and their identity at mm -hmm. home when they come to work. I think if we're thinking about the future of work, part of that is understanding that work is done by people mm. and people, their identities form the core of who they are. And if an organization expects those people to be successful, we need to be looking at them as whole human beings and everything that makes them unique and brings that diversity to work. That's a really important aspect of the inclusion work that we we want to be doing and that we are doing at Reactor specifically, but it, it can be a call to arms for the tech industry at large is realizing that you can't expect people to like bring their professional selves to work and leave the other stuff at home. Yeah. Everyone has the right to determine that how much of themselves they want to bring to work. But I think the the critical kind of like border is that whether you feel comfortable enough to share things about you that mm. might affect your work. Like, is the, in, is the environment you're working in psychologically safe and inclusive enough to be open about things mm. that you would like to bring to the table? Or do you feel like you have to leave some critical parts of yourself yeah. behind the door when mm. you enter the office? If you, for example, have ADHD and you know how it impacts you at work, if you were communicating about that to the people you work with, might be really beneficial, but it has to come with a guarantee that it won't affect that you would be, for example, discriminated against because Absolutely. of that. I think, yeah. I think on that point, I just want to insert a little footnote that we've yeah. recently published a really cool article, I think, by Yalmari, our one of reactorians who mm -hmm. shares his experience working as a developer with ADHD. And I think like for me, even though I'm not the coder myself, it was super interesting just to read this, this experience that he's sharing. So I'll, I'll just link it to, to the podcast notes, to the episode notes. So for everyone who is interested in that topic specifically, you can dive deeper and uh, read Yalmari's experience. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of that blog post, there's a whole list of other resources shared by a person who came and actually did a talk about neurodiversity at Reactor. His name's Jacek. And those resources are amazing. They're really, mm -hmm. really great. Nice. I feel that this is a lot about, you know, we talk about empathy, having empathy for other people and understanding that people are different from you. Also accepting that 
uh, as the default that people are different. How can you increase empathy? I guess is, is my question. Like, how do you understand the current situation? What do you need to do in order to like assess where we are as a company? Where would you start? I would say that there's a lot of misconceptions and myths about DEI to begin with. Sometimes it creates different kind of defenses and makes the empathy part a bit more challenging. Some people have misconceptions that DEI is about categorizing people in a different way as opposed to categorizing people in a negative way. It's actually about normalizing those differences and recognizing the barriers in order to make sure that everyone has a fairer chance to reach their full potential. But I think if an organization wants to advance DEI in a sustainable way, Mm -hmm. it usually requires data Mm -hmm. and somehow assessing the current state of your organization because otherwise we might not be able to identify the different gaps of inclusion. Oftentimes, having that data about the state of diversity, equity and inclusion at your company can also spark empathy Mm -hmm. when you're in the beginning of your DEI journey. We did a survey in the Amsterdam office a while ago and there were some results that really opened up people's eyes and it sparked a pretty fruitful group discussion about how to change things. There's something about people who come from underrepresented backgrounds when they are able to share their experiences in an enormous way. Suddenly there's so much power to that because that's that type of feedback is something that you can't ignore. It was actually really a force for good. To add some like more practical tips for the empathy part, I just usually myself, I just try to keep in mind that even if I haven't witnessed or experienced something myself, it doesn't mean that it's not a lived experience or a reality Mm -hmm. to a colleague of mine. And that applies to us all. And we can all learn more about our differences and how it affects how we operate, for example, in teams or in a working environment. And just remembering the thing that I just said and like keeping your mind curious and reflective, I think is key in creating more empathy when we talk about DEI. I really like how we get more tangible and practical. Mm-hmm. And hopefully somebody could also borrow some of the techniques or tricks that we, we are sharing today. You mentioned data and I have very, again, uh, technical question. For me, DEI, it seems like a very qualitative kind of phenomenon. You cannot just measure it like it's 10 out of 10 DI is the point here, right? <laughs> so I'm just curious on what can you actually measure and what like data points you collect? How do you put those things such as feelings or subjective thoughts into something that is like numbers? There's actually so much you can do. If an organization is just beginning their journey and they and this usually is the path where you've got a group of people who feel very strongly about this and they're working on DEI initiatives on top of their existing work. If they are a grassroots organization within within their company, I mean, they can do similar to what we did, which was pull together a survey from SurveyMonkey and they actually had pre-existing questions. So you can go into SurveyMonkey, for example, and you can say, we want to do a DEI survey. And then boom, there's like some... I think it was like 30 odd questions. And that was already incredibly powerful for us to do it at a very low threshold kind of way. But of course, there are solutions out there for bigger organizations with more science behind them to help people really reflect as they're doing the survey as well. In terms of the types of questions, usually they're statements. What 
they're asking the respondents to do is to share their strength of feelings. Do they strongly agree or strongly disagree? So an example question could be, I don't have a fear of talking about difficult subjects with my colleagues who are different to me. Strongly agree to strongly disagree. And then you answer them and then at the end, tell us a little bit about your demographics and then you can get a lot of really powerful data from that. What I liked about the uh, surveys, it, it really kind of makes you stop and think what you felt during these situations if you've encountered them. So say then that you have the data, what's next? Well, for example, in Reactor's case, this is also like very common when we think about DEI surveys. They are oftentimes done by a third party because of the sensitivity of, for example, especially the demographic. When we're measuring diversity, there's a lot of sensitivities and that's why oftentimes companies have a third party service provider to help, not always, but sometimes. For example, what we're doing at Reactor is that when we get the results of our first global DEI survey and we understand our current state on a global scale, the next thing that me and Cassie are going to do is we're going to start building a global target state. And of course, it doesn't always have to be global. If you're a smaller tech company, Mm -hmm. of course, you can have like office-specific OKRs for your DEI work. But I do recommend thinking of DEI as any other business OKR or KPI and not to think about it as a separate glued initiative on top of everything else, but start thinking about ways how to to implement DEI into your processes and practices and how to measure that and how to set targets that actually help you improve. To sum up, setting some sort of targets would be, of course, a natural Mm -hmm. natural next step after assessing your current state. Are there any targets that are generally desirable for all companies to reach? Or is it all very individual depending on the like the state behind the company? I would rather say that it depends on the, the company itself and the nature of their work. And because DEI is such a huge topic, what usually is done when you build DEI strategies, you have to set some sort of focus areas as well. Yeah. So that's why I think targeting DEI strategies to fit the current company's context and reality is really important. Mm. Just like any other business strategy, when you do a DEI strategy, ultimately you need to make those choices about what would have the most impact. So if you do a survey and you find that diversity is lacking and you realize, well, we need to make sure we have more diversity in our organization, how do we get that? If that's in line with the business strategy, then that's the the priority. But it could also come to pass that actually inclusion's an issue. There's a lot of people who are feeling excluded. Everything goes hand in hand, but ultimately, if the culture of your organization isn't very inclusive, all the work you're doing to promote diversity goes down the drain anyway. Because ultimately, people will leave. If they come in day one and realize that their needs haven't been thought of at all, or they know they're going to feel excluded already from like week one, they're not going to stay. Why would they? And so it's important that we do these surveys and obviously we're going to look at things from a quantitative perspective, but there is an element of trying to understand qualitative feedback as well that people tell us how they feel so that we know, okay, that can support as well the quantitative research and then ultimately the the strategy that we're doing as well. We talked a lot about hybrid work. Uh, in the previous episodes. And I imagine that the pandemic also has brought some additional challenges to the whole matter of inclusivity. Do you have any interesting cases 
uh, to share or challenges that are still here with us even after the, the pandemic. The pandemic and first changing to completely remote work and then to hybrid work has actually increased the complexities of, of like inclusive leadership as well. So not like, of course, inclusion as a broader topic, but I think it set a lot of new kind of challenges to the way you lead. And you probably, if you lead a team or mentor an individual or whatever it is, I think it really made you rethink about how to showcase, for example, empathy and soft mm-hmm. skills yeah, when you yeah. are working in a completely remote setting. So I think that's one aspect that comes to mind. I facilitate a lot of meetings. It is a different ball game doing that remotely over the little screens um, instead of, you know, being able to be in the same room like we are right now. We're like you, you feel the energy. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard as well, though, that there's been some good sides as well with hybrid working in terms of inclusion in that there are some people that naturally just work better mm-hmm. from home. Of course. Mm-hmm. For example, people from a neuro diverse background, they just don't actually do so well in like a busy office with a lot mm-hmm. of distractions and being yeah. able to work from home and not have to continually ask for permission to do that mm-hmm. or, or or continually trying to set expectations that they need to work from home, which can be exhausting. They've actually found it really beneficial. And so I think if there's one thing we've learned from this is that creating an environment where people feel really comfortable to share their preferred working setup mm-hmm. and needs knowing that they're not going to be judged for it is huge. I guess I didn't personally realize it until I had to work from home and then I had to transition to going back to the office. I don't know how I did it before, like getting ready, putting makeup on, going to the office, being social, but also trying to do focus work. And now I take my days from home as like, like, peace. I, like, like peace and yeah. focus yeah. and I can really get some stuff done. But also there are times when like working from the office can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I yeah. think we recognizing that and, and not judging people for not wanting to be in the office. And I think that also opens up a broader discussion around the fact that people who are more visible in the office mm-hmm. and more visible on public channels, let's say on Slack, they tend to be the people that get the opportunities to get promoted at work. That reminds me of like, there are so many ways that you can lead someone, like different leadership models. And one of them is definitely kind of being more working on the background and just helping people get their voices heard. So this sounds like this is a challenge to find a way where we can enable that. The people that are more quiet, naturally more quiet and prefer that way, they can still be heard. Yeah. For me, like, I think that being an inclusive leader doesn't just make you a good leader of diversity and inclusion, but it makes you a mm-hmm. better leader overall. Yeah. It sounds like it could be, or it should be the default setting. Yeah, 100%. You, Yasmin, you mentioned resistance, that often people uh, or the employees, they show some kind of resistance to DI changes or DI initiatives. Can you elaborate on that? It often comes from a place of, misunderstandings, misconceptions about the whole topic. Typical misconceptions that we, for example, face in our DEI work is that working with diversity, equity, inclusion only would benefit the marginalized or the underrepresented, as opposed to inclusion being something that makes work environments better for all of us. And then maybe another aspect is that people understand diversity from a very narrow place. So they don't necessarily understand that it refers to the differences in all of us. And there's usually always something 
that contributes to our differing experiences. Of course, keeping in mind that then there are different aspects to being, for example, a marginalized person and you might have different kind of barriers in, in an organization as well. And then oftentimes people, especially in the Nordics, I think tend to rely on this discourse that I'm already a respectful person and I treat everyone inclusively and equally, which is a typical bias that kind of like prevents us from seeing how the systemic aspect of DEI might affect people's experiences in a company regardless of mm. our good intention of treating everyone equally. And it's also kind of like preventing us from sometimes identifying the biases that we might have that might affect how we interact with the surrounding world. Is there anything that comes to your mind? I think when we talk about DEI to people who have not had a lot of thought or understanding of the topic, it's very easy for people to make assumptions that the topic of DEI is inherently judging them or that they're automatically a bad person. This is something that Yasmin talks a lot about, the good-bad binary. People tend to fall immediately into this space. Well, you're talking to us about DEI. Does that mean I'm automatically a bad person because of my place in society, who I was or, or am or where I was born? I can't help that. So why are you talking to me about this? It brings up a lot of feelings of internal judgment that mm-hmm. people think, oh, okay, well now I'm expected to feel bad for myself. And that's something that we we try to, you know, open up the discussion a lot more. And we say nuance a lot when we talk about DEI because there is so much nuance in the topic as a whole. And we never want to come from a place of shame for any of the work, for, for people who come from the majority background or the people that come from a marginalized background. It, sometimes it feels like we're walking a tightrope trying to balance the different needs of, of those different groups. Mm-hmm. But the biggest misconception, I think, is that this work is only there just to make people feel bad. Yeah. And that's, that is completely wrong. Our, our goal, I think, is just to help people create that environment where if they need to share something that has deeply impacted them, that they would feel comfortable to do so and they know that they wouldn't feel bad about it or they wouldn't be made to feel judged by it. You mentioned sustainable DEI. You mentioned actionable, uh, creating impact. I That's mean, the marketing person catching up all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but with all seriousness, I want to, as a marketing person, <laughs> I want to open up a topic that is really tickling me. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a tricky one, but I still really want to, maybe in, in this safe circle we have, the circle of trust <laughs> we have here, maybe open up on this topic and find answers for myself because I am often find myself triggered by that. What I'm trying to lead us to is uh, talking about, I found it's called diversity washing. Not mm. sure if it's an official term uh, widely used or not, but you get the point. It's parallel to greenwashing where it's all these initiatives are mainly used for marketing, for facade, whether it's Pride Month and every, every company paints their logos in rainbow flags and then you know, there's a lot of memes and then, then like in two weeks, whatever. It's, it's not our business anymore. And then, or with Black Lives Matter or even the war in Ukraine now, but often feels like we'll change our avatar in social medias for, for a month and then our job is done. I, I can maybe open up on the case to Ukraine because as a Ukrainian, to me, it feels like it's really weird two-sided coin here because on the one hand side, I'm really 
feeling grateful for companies to raise the awareness. I feel grateful for that. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's bittersweet uh, feeling when you end up asking yourself, okay, but is it just selectivism? My question, I guess, would be, we're in some kind of breaking point again uh, here as it was with greenwashing, right? When the, the term appeared as a result of companies just exploiting the, 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 this movement. And yeah. I'm fearing that the same could be with DI and matters of inclusion, matters of acceptance, that companies are just going to commercialize it eventually mm-hmm. and no action will be taken. So I'm worried about that. <laughs> what can we do to actually change that course of uh, where it's all heading? First of all, thanks thanks for sharing and thanks for opening up this discussion. It is unfortunate diversity washing is a thing. Yeah. And uh, some companies do treat DEI as a mere marketing exercise, unfortunately. What I would like to see happening instead is that companies would really understand that DEI work has to start from within and actions do really speak louder than words. Of course, it's hard to find like a balance of like how much Do you need to communicate about these things and like, for example, like you said, raise awareness as opposed to actually like doing the work and doing concrete actions that build the kind of of future of work that we want to see? I don't know if I answered your question, but... <laughs> I mean, we're not going to solve it like, yeah, in, well, in one hour anyway. Here's yeah. the perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> When we first started our DEI work... At a local level in Amsterdam, we were very conscious of this. And we had a lot of decisions to make. For example, Amsterdam in particular is very well known for its Pride Month. For a while we were discussing, you know, do we sponsor the Pride Month and all that. The most common feedback I got when I asked for advice on this was from from the group at large was, well, are we really doing the work or are we just throwing money at the problem? Mm. Even just having that discussion was, you know, what can we be doing to further the needs and solutions for those groups in our organization to make sure that they're also feeling heard beyond just, well, as we like to say, throwing money at the problem, right? Uh, And I think this is kind of embedded in the culture of Reactor in its entirety is we're a very humble company. (laughs) And so even taking this step to communicate about the stuff we're doing in the DEI space is already in and of itself quite a big deal for us at the moment, because there is a lot of opinions coming out, um, not just from our organization, but just from um, the community at large. And it's murky waters sometimes to navigate, to make sure that you do hit the right balance of communicating what we're doing, but making sure that the work we're doing actually has impact. And I think, Olis, you touched on a couple of things, the conflict in Ukraine. Are we exploiting that for our own gain by changing our avatar to the Ukrainian flag? And I think even just having people being confident enough to say that, Mm. especially when you have skin in the game, right? Like taking that viewpoint into account automatically holds a lot more weight than than when you're having a a hypothetical discussion about it. All we can really say is what we've been doing in this work so far. And we've tried to be very careful to toe that balance of just sharing what we're doing because there is huge impact in that. Other organizations are always looking to other organizations. How are you benchmarking things? What are your KPIs? How are you reorganizing your org chart to better reflect DEI values and and your needs. So talking about it is huge, but making sure that we're not doing it from a place of 
exploitation or just marketing gain that requires a monumental level of self-reflection, both from the DEI practitioners, but also from the company as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Cassie really summarized it well. So of course it's okay to communicate, but I mentioned before that actions speak louder than words. You can still have those words, mm. but be like, make sure that you couple it with action. Yeah. And maybe when it comes to like communicating about DEI in a company, I think transparency is key. And it's okay like to communicate that you're kind of like on the journey. You don't have to like polish your brand. Exploitation was the critical word here. So don't exploit, be transparent, couple your words with meaningful action and mm. try to stay reflective as you go. Yeah, I, I like that on, on the journey. Mm -hmm term. Yeah. But is the journey ever complete? Of no. course not. But it's a journey of constant steps and progress, hopefully. Yeah. So, And it's also very possible and likely that you will make mistakes. Well, I'm gay and I'm also a woman in tech. So I've been taking part in many kind of photo shoots where my face is kind of the face of the company. So it feels a little bit explosive. 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 Exploitative. That's the thing. But also I want to like believe that even though things sometimes start from the marketing perspective, that they, there is the journey and it'll, you know, end up into greater things. As I feel at least in Reactor, it has happened that way. In marketing, we're exposed to the outside world first. The stuff we're doing um, that we're communicating or promoting externally. When we post a photo as part of a blog post and then you see on social media all the comments like, hey, how come everyone's white? How mm -hmm. come everyone's male? It usually does fall on marketing shoulders at the very beginning of the DEI journey in an organization to say, okay, we need to be thinking about this because we can't keep doing photo shoots of straight white men, <laughs> you know, and, and then, yeah. you know, for a recruitment ad where women are now, and rightfully so, commenting saying, well, just so you know, I don't feel comfortable joining this organization because look at your photos. Yeah. So there is a place, I think, for marketing to have a role in the DEI journey for an organization. Usually it is the canary in the coal mine, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have now the, the, the challenge for you. Let's oh, say th this is, <laughs> let's take Acne and Company that is at the very beginning of this journey that, as you said, has all uh, straight white men. They want to recruit uh, more diverse talent. Do they hire models then? Like, well, how, how do you... <laughs> I, no. I, I don't... That was provocative. It's not... Yeah. So if you have a very homogenous company that is starting their DEI journey, yeah. I think, of course, like these are not the low-hanging fruits necessarily, but I would first start asking that, okay, since we already have this diversity that, and lack of diversity in our company, what can we do within the current team to make sure that we break our potential collective bias and make sure that whoever comes in next can feel psychologically safe and included regardless mm, of mm. us being a homogenous group. And in addition to that, coupling that with developing intentionally conscious, inclusive hiring processes to make sure that the homogenicity of the current team will not just result in just hiring more people like them. Two points trying to like be really critical about what is this level of inclusivity in the current team and how can we make sure 
that our uh, recruiting process enables more diverse hiring. And then when they come to the company, they actually feel psychologically safe and included enough that they don't just want to run through the door. Because, yeah. <laughs> of course, like I understand if you have like lack of diversity in your company, if you have a homogenous company, you have to start from somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. It's- you, you don't have to be defensive about it. Of right? course. But but I wouldn't maybe start with like hiring models for <laughs> no, no, no. the that photo was, shoot because no, that, that would was... kind of like, I would feel at least a bit tricked yeah. <laughs> in that case. <laughs> yeah, that was my trick to spark uh, discussion. <laughs> it was a good spark. <laughs> but I, I, I love your point. It's very practical, like concrete two steps to start with DEI. I think it's it's brilliant. Like we, we can carve them and then sell them to a lot of... <laughs> Companies in, in Finland. We'll explore and, that. And, we'll explore that. <laughs> and that comes back to the focus that I was talking about. Sorry to I know that, kill I, the joke here. It was a good bad. joke. We're just laughing and just actually trying to, 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 to say something. Yeah, that kind of like just to still try to summarize, this comes back to prioritizing what you need to do with DI and what is the focus of your actions at this stage yeah. of the journey. Yeah. So that's why I want to emphasize the importance of having focus for the actions that you need and for also for the change that you want to see happening on a shorter term that, of course, then supports the longer term picture. There's also like you have to be dedicated. It could be one step realizing that this is how our team looks like right now. We want to make a change and then you try and you realize it's really hard mm. because, I, I mean, I've seen those pages where there's like 20 white men and then I'm like, someone calls me, you want to work for us? And no, I don't because I feel that I don't want to be the first one. So it's it's a lot of work. So you have to be really dedicated so and not to give up the first like obstacle that you face. Yeah. And it takes a lot of energy. So how are you holding up? Oh boy. <laughs> I didn't realize this could turn into a therapy session. <laughs> uh, I'm okay. I, I, I'm really grateful that I've, over the years, I've built up a certain amount of emotional resilience um, because a lot of this job is communicating and holding space for different people's feelings and opinions, sometimes sublimating like instant gut reactions. And, and because also I'm human as well, Yasmin's human. Everybody in the DEI team's human. And sometimes we have emotional responses to things as well. And my personal thing is sometimes I feel like people think that I'm like holier than thou or people who practice DEI or practitioners are where like the morality police or something. And that's not the case. Mm. We work at the intersection of like business leaders, HR, talent growth, talent acquisition, communications, marketing, the whole community, like the work community. We work with strategy. We work with change management. So it's like there's also a lot of misconceptions about what being a DEI professional actually is. But coming back to your point, yes, it requires some level of resilience. And that's why, for example, I'm really grateful that at Reactor there are two people leading yeah. the global DEI work. There's, I think there's a lot of power to having like this kind of a DEI duo so that also you don't have to deal with all the negative sides of the work. It's important to have a sounding board as mm-hmm. well yeah. that is in the depths of the work with you. I can't imagine how lonely it would be to do this by yourself. Now you can have good cop, bad cop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but jokes aside, I think what you described, Yasmin, here about DI function being embedded in yeah. all different functions is really a sign that you lot are part of the strategic drive 
mm. at the organization. This is really healthy sign, in my opinion, right? In my previous podcast, we, we talked a lot, a lot about communications function, internal communications function, and oftentimes it ends up siloed uh, as a like sole soldier that is kind of trying to send some emails or just notify, try to again spark some discussions, maybe also help with the AI, but they're kind of siloed. The fact that you say like it, it is overwhelming that you need to be involved in in marketing initiatives, you have to be involved in the in the company's large strategy. But it is super valuable that you are impacting those decisions. Definitely, and that goes back to kind of like one of the things I really wish people remembered that DI is not like a separate glued upon initiative, but it's actually something that cuts through the whole organization and it should be embedded into mm. the different processes and practices and ways of working in the organization. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have like a head of DEI. It's also very much possible to embed that change if there is a high level of DEI maturity yeah. mm-hmm. in the company. So for example, if there is a smaller startup that is listening to this, you don't have to hire a head of DEI to start the work, but but it does require that first of all, there is buy-in for the topic that you recognize the value of that work first, and then implementing and embedding that into to things that you do. It's very much possible, but you need to have some sort of a DEI maturity and buy-in for that to, to start getting there. Yeah. The buy-in is crucial. Exactly. But if there are organizations where you have people working on DEI from a grassroots perspective, at some point, they need to realize that if it feels like a Sisyphean effort, like they're pushing a boulder up a hill, usually that's the critical point where people end up leaving. Because mm. often yeah. you'll see people really wanting to, to make the change, but if, if leadership aren't supporting them, at, at some point there needs to be reflection on the leadership's part to actually make this a priority for them to help enable those efforts and lift them up and empower them. All those people will just leave. How can we change minds of people that are maybe old school, maybe resistant? If there's resistance, usually one of the common barriers is that like they don't think it's a business priority. But what I usually then start uh, framing it through the risks of like, what are the risks of like totally neglecting this topic? In many cases, a company is like exit data shows that you have like a bigger proportion of underrepresented employees leaving. And if you like put numbers to that, that how much does it actually cost you when you lose this talent? That's when they usually start understanding it. You just have to find the right data and the right ways of messaging it to them. And usually if they don't understand it from the data that we have from the the benefits, usually it comes from understanding at least the risks. This reminds me of the, was it the previous episode that we discussed with Gabby and Panu about the uh, future of Agile? And in that, Gabby mentioned the holy trinity of of like what you need in order to succeed. One was a business, obviously, you need to make money. One was the customer, you need to think about the customer. But the third one was the people or were the people of the company. So this really also highlights the fact that the people in the company are important, but that you can also couple it with money if you need to drive yeah. the point. When you mention money, you'll always get the attention. <laughs> if you think about the customer perspective, mm-hmm. what is actually interesting to see through DEI work, especially during this past year, there has been increasing requirements from clients mm-hmm. as well. 
for example, from team compositions to mm-hmm. to like, okay, how are we going to make sure that that inclusion is somehow embedded yeah. and a part of this project, etc. So also mm-hmm. like when it comes to DEI, I, I do see a lot of increasing requirements from customers as well. And that, of course, builds higher incentive for the business case as well, mm-hmm. yeah. especially in companies like IT consulting companies. Mm. That's brilliant. That also makes me wonder if that might be one of the reasons why we've had this shift towards like multi-vendor projects more and more where we mm. the customer wants to collect the people from different companies. So you maybe might improve your chances of getting a more diverse team. Possibly, yeah. I've seen RFPs where they've explicitly asked for the percentage of women in leadership mm-hmm. in our organization. And that, I think, was a real eye-opener to realize, okay, this isn't just something that we need to be doing because it is inherently the right thing, but also it's a business imperative. I think it's a good, positive note to wrap this discussion. Money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Follow the money. Sweet cash, no. <laughs> Sometimes doing the right thing might also be yeah. beneficial yeah. Yeah, to be to business. Yeah, re- rephrasing Drake. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been a brilliant discussion. It was so nice to have you with us today, Yasmin and Cast. Thank you so much for joining and uh, and sharing your experiences and perspectives. It was super nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. <laughs> yeah. I've never laughed this much about DEI. <laughs> Me neither. I also like it that it's not too serious. Like we, we, we're human beings and I hope that we also made one or two people who listen to this uh, episode crack a smile. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Th- thanks for tuning in, everyone. I think this will be the wrap of this future of work season. It's a bit shorter than usual, but we're trying to experiment with this approach where we have a narrower kind of focus for for the season where we dive deep into one topic and then try to look at it from different angles. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure from Ross's behalf, who's not here, my own behalf, Oles, uh, Anna. Yeah, it's been really nice. It's been such a like the whole future of work. It's been inspiring to think about that. And as we really like talked about it during the whole theme of it is we're building it right now. So that's why it's really exciting. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.